Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Where can you find a chunk of the Matterhorn enshrined at a Utah ski resort? What's the origin of Yosepa, the Hawaiian ghost town in the desert? And why is Utah called the Beehive State? Well, the book Secret Salt Lake City is a guide to the oddities, wonders, myths, and legends of Utah's capital city, opening a window into the weird, the bizarre, and the obscure secrets of the city, some of which are hiding in plain sight. Did you know that there's an alphabet hidden in your computer that was invented in Salt Lake City? How did Sherlock Holmes solve the fictional mystery in London that originated in Utah? Secret Salt Lake City was written by Jeremy Pugh and Mary Brown Maloof. Jeremy Pugh joins us on the program today. Jeremy Pugh is a writer living in Salt Lake City. One way or another, he's been writing about culture, history, and the outdoors in Utah for more than two decades. He's formerly editor of Salt Lake Magazine. He's a freelancer and consultant writing for Ski, Lonely Planet, and Salt Lake Magazines. And uh, you can find him on Twitter and Instagram, at Very Dynamite. And, uh, in fact, uh, his website is... Uh, at verydynamite.com. Uh, Jeremy uh, Pugh, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you for having me. Appreciate you uh, you joining us. Uh, I should mention, previously yeah. author of 100 Things to Do in Salt Lake City Before You Die. It's a previous book. Yeah, written a lot about Salt Lake City. Yeah. Uh, and actually, I'm, the, I'm the, currently the editor of Salt Lake Magazine. Oh, I you're think g- I sent you an older bio. Oh, currently editor. Okay, <laughs> so, great. You're, you're, you're yeah. back. Okay, very good. <laughs> Uh, I'll, I will change that. Um, so <laughs> you wrote, uh, I'll just take a, a little synopsis from 100 Things to Do in Salt Lake City Before You Die, because it applies to Secret Salt Lake City. Um, I'll just read this sentence. You, Salt Lake City is a surprising city, and I, in many ways, I think. Uh, for, for one, um, you know, people from the outside might think, uh, well, conservative Utah Salt Lake City is going to be a red city. Not the case. Correct. Yeah, I mean, we're kind of a blue dot. Um, it's the, you know, capital city. Uh, and, you know, it, I don't know. There's, we've got a very interesting culture. We have one of the most interesting histories in the 50 states, I think. You know, maybe Texas kind of rivals us for, for origin stories. Um, but we're, you know, a state and a city that was that was founded under unique circumstances when you consider the sort of typical western expansion hail of you know people found something in the hole in the ground they dug it up <laughs> but uh we have kind of a modern day exodus story uh, of a group of people who came here in 1847 uh the latter-day saints the church members of the church of jesus christ uh, of latter-day saints um uh, sorry i got bungled that uh typically known as, as the mormons um or sort of colloquially, <laughs> I suppose. Um, you know, and they came here for religious freedom and and built this city, literally built this city, uh, uh, from, from the ground up. So, you know, again, it, it isn't that typical mining, uh, minerals, all that stuff. You know, we have a, a very different beginning than most Western states. So. Yeah, very, very true. In the introduction to this book, you talk about uh, that uh, the 1847, right? The uh, the Latter Day Saints are migrating, and uh, you know, you you could have gone to California, mining ramps up there in 1849. Um, exactly. but, but that's not what Brigham Young wanted. He he wanted to he wanted a lonely place in the middle of the desert. 
Yeah, you know, and that's, you know, in working on both of these books, uh, especially Secret Salt Lake, which is, is uh, you know, a bit more researched, um, you know, I I talked to a lot of other historians. I'm not, myself, wouldn't call myself a historian, but, um, you know, I worked on this book with a lot of advice from, like, Ken Sanders, who's a rare book dealer down here in Salt Lake, uh, Will Bagley, uh, who uh, wrote extensive histories of the, the Mormon migration, um, and passed away last year, unfortunately. Um, and one of the things that really struck me about um, it's kind of an apocryphal tale, but there's this idea that, or I, I kind of a, a mythical idea that that you know the 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 early Mormons left uh, Illinois, uh, and it, this idea that they didn't know where they were going, like, like Brigham Young was a uh, who was the leader of the church, uh, you know, was like uh, <laughs> looking for a campsite somewhere, <laughs> you know, like, you know, but he had a very, he had sent scouts uh, very deliberately, you know, they knew that they were, their time was kind of coming short in, in Illinois and Missouri uh, because of all the troubles there. And they, <laughs> he'd sent scouts all the way, you know, to Texas, Kansas, um, and out, actually out to Sutter's Mill, which is where the beginning of the gold rush in California was, and Yerba Buena. Um, and, you know, the, all of those scouts reported back, and, and this sort of apocryphal tale of, of uh, his scouts in California saying what a great place it was, and wow, this gold rush thing was starting to take off. And he declined. He didn't want to be... Where he says that sounds, you know, he didn't literally say this, but the sentiment is that that sounds like a place where other people want to be. <laughs> and he wanted to be kind of nowhere and far away from uh, everything. And at this point in time, Salt Lake City was technically, uh, I mean, it, this location was kind of nowhere on the map. It was in contested territory between Mexico and the United States. The Mexican war was about to kick off here in a little bit. And, I mean, it was, it was United States territory, but it was on the edge of that. Uh, you know, and it was a known place uh, that, that, you know, Western travelers had passed through, but um, it suited him just fine. <laughs> I guess is the way to put that. Uh, so when they arrived here in 1847, he famously announced, "This is the place," and uh, they set up shop. So, uh, in in fact, uh, that's a that appears in the book, right? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah and, and, I, and and you know, it's just sort of for me, it was like a backdrop of a lot of these um, items in my book because it sort of sets the stage. Uh, uh, for uh, a place that was sort of built on secret. You know, I, I, I don't want to say that the, the Mormons were secretive. I just mean that they were wary of outsiders um, based on their, their troubles in Illinois. And, and so they sort of kept to themselves, uh, which, you know, uh, builds a lot of uh, interesting quirky things, you know, that developed from that. And there's, there's this always been this kind of push and pull between the secular and the sacred here in Utah. 
um, that has evolved into you know, just a, a very interesting cultural uh, place. I think best way I can put that. So. One of the uh, one of the interesting there are many and some of them appear in this book. One of the interesting outgrowths you might call it of of this this culture, right? Uh, Brigham Young wanted to be separate, and there are reasons for that, right? Um, yeah. To to the point where you know had uh, for a while separate currency and a and a uh, and a new alphabet. Yeah, the the Deseret alphabet is one of those. Uh, kind of head scratch what but it, it wasn't that uncommon a thing so uh, uh the early church sent out missionaries um and and attracted many uh new converts to the church who eventually came came west uh you know and settled here in salt lake city and and many of them came from country, other countries they, they had they had missionaries in in uh in europe uh, they had a lot of success in England and in the Scandinavian countries. Um, you know, Cache Valley has a, a big Swedish population, as you, you know, or descendants of Swedes uh, out in Wellsville and whatnot, um, and uh, and Swiss. Um, so they had a lot of success, but they had all these people that didn't necessarily speak English. And so he created, or his some of the people on his linguist, uh, it was kind of a phenomenon of the time, too, because George Shaw, who wrote uh, Pygmalion, which is Mike Our Lady, uh, the, you know, um, had created a, a phonetic alphabet called the Shavian alphabet, actually. Um, and so it was kind of a trend in linguistics. And so Brigham Young said, or his, his people built uh, an alphabet called the Deseret alphabet, which was a phonetic uh, alphabet that ideally made it easier for non-English speakers to learn English and to read the Book of Mormon specifically. So, and that um, that alphabet, you know, is more of a it's it's symbol based and it's 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 sort of like a cuneiform type thing, and it looks funky, I guess, you know. And there's been several artists over the years uh, in Salt Lake City have like picked that up. And you used it in art projects and stuff because it is a really kind of an odd, arcane thing that 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 is again part of this great origin story that we have here. I'd like to pause. Uh, we'll get into a bunch of the other uh, very interesting uh, chapters in the book. I'd like to pause, talk about uh, a couple of people who are instrumental in this book. Um, uh, your co-author, for example, Mary Brown Maloof. Um, tell us a bit about her. Uh, she she. Uh, Tragically died in an accident. Uh, what? Uh, twenty twenty. Oh, about a, about yeah, about this time of year, actually, December seventh. Interestingly, uh, you know, Pearl Harbor and all. Um, well, so Mary and I uh, worked at Salt Lake Magazine. I, I I actually got sort of my start at the Herald Journal up in Logan, uh, and uh, got the opportunity to come down and work at Salt Lake Magazine way back in two thousand six, and Mary came on board shortly after that. And we worked together pretty much that whole time. Uh, I came and went from the magazine doing other jobs and stuff, but always kind of came back and always kind of kept my hand in and worked very closely with Mary and her late husband, Glenn Warchell. And um, I kind of got stuck on the book. You know, it's, it was a bigger project, you know, 
and it, you know, it, and I sort of got about halfway or a third in, and I kind of raised the flag. And Mary and I wrote and worked together on many things, mainly at the magazine. Um, and she's very talented. She was a very talented writer, um, and so she just jumped in with me, and we we finished the almost finished the book before she tragically passed. She was visiting her son in California, and was swept away by a wave on a, a jetty on the coast of California, a uh, very bizarre accident and tragic and something that, you know, all of us who knew and loved Mary, uh, you know, mourn still. Uh, but, you know, this was kind of her final, she and I's final project. And, and so there's a lot of uh, positive feelings about it, you know, because, I mean, again, we wrote and worked together for many, many years. And I honestly couldn't tell you what, chapters she wrote and what I wrote it you know it's so you know we had such a great uh writing relationship and friendship so I'm you know I'm kind of proud to have finished the book and got it out there in the world you know it's kind of a you know a memorial of sorts uh to my good friend Mary Brown Maloof who was the editor of Salt Lake Magazine also for many years and um you know kind of a she was known as a food writer uh, kind of a fearsome critic, if you will, uh, who had worked at the Tribune. She came from Texas. Uh, she worked at the, you know, at, in Dallas at, at D Magazine before she came here, uh, and was primarily a food writer. Um, that was her. That was her love and her passion. And um, you know, it was just, it was a great privilege to be her friend and and to have her contribute, you know, to the book. And and it's it's. I'm glad it's out there in the world, you know, as one little thing of Mary. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, something to remember her her by. Yeah, that's a, that's a tragic. Yeah, uh, um, you you've already mentioned uh, Ken Sanders and Will Bagley. Uh, give a shout out to Robert Gerke, a few others. Um, one that just piqued my interest, Trent Harris. You give a shout out to his book Mondo Utah, which you say <laughs> is way weirder than this one. I guess if you if you know <laughs> if you know Trent Harris, you know it's going to be interesting. Would be the Euphemism, perhaps. Yeah, Trent. Uh, Trent's actually become a, a colleague and a friend over the years. Um, I, 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 uh, and, and and you know, my publisher does these books in other cities, and but I feel a great debt because Trent was kind of like a pioneer of weird Utah. Um, you know, he's made many movies uh, set here in Utah. Uh, very strange movies. Some that involve the desert alphabet plan. Plan Ten from Outer Space is a is a great movie. If you haven't seen it, and and my personal connection to it is when I was in just out of high school. I went to high school in like Woods Cross. My friend Jane, uh, who was kind of plugged into like the scene, uh, invited me to a premiere of a movie called Reuben and Ed at the Tower. And usually when Jane invited me to something, I would go <laughs> because she always had, <clears throat> it was always something interesting, excuse me. And um, so <laughs> I went and saw this movie and the movie stars by Trent Harris, um, stars Crispin Glover uh, from Back to the Future is probably his most famous role. And Howard Hessman uh, from, he would, most people would know him from like WKRP and Cincinnati or head of the class, which was a long running sitcom. Um, and, and, 
it was such an interesting. I, I just I fell in love with this movie, and if you haven't seen the movie, uh, it's available from Trent uh, EchoCave.net is his website, um, and because uh, uh, it was it was it was kind of his biggest production. He filmed it with Paramount, um, and it's just this funny little movie that I kind of consider re- required reading for living in Utah. Um, it's about uh, a young man who's Crispin Glover who lives with his mom <laughs> and his cat has died and he, his mom wants him to get out and make some friends. And then Howard Hessman is in a sales real estate seminar program <laughs> and he needs to recruit people to come to these seminars. And so they meet up, but then they end up on this kind of buddy adventure, uh, acrimonious buddy adventure, where they are finding a place to bury uh, Crispin Glover's frozen cat <laughs> that he's kept in the freezer because he didn't know what to do with it. And they go all they go down to Goblin Valley. It's just you kind of have to see it, but it's a very uh, smart and funny movie, um, and kind of a I don't know, it just it po it. it it like it's like a window into Utah in a way, like because it's very Utah, uh, multi-level marketing organizations, things like that. So, highly recommend it. And at that premiere, uh, Crispin Glover and Howard Heston put their finger, you know, they did kind of a Grauman's Chinese theater thing out in front of the tower, and so Crispin Glover's handprints are on this little piece of concrete <laughs> out in front of the. The Tower Theater that's still there, and you can rent Ruben and Ed from the Tower Theater. They have a big DVD rental thing there. So, highly recommend the movie, and just anything by Trent Harris. He's a, he's a really uh, uh, interesting interesting character in our 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 scene here. So, yeah, Crispin Glover's handprints. Uh, it's a chapter in the book. You can go yeah. you can go and see. Yeah. It. Uh, by the way, if you're not familiar, a lot of us are. Um, one of the more bizarre bits of television. Uh, just Google Crispin Glover on Letterman. <laughs> yeah, that was a. In fact, I was talking to Trent about this the other day, and he he suggested to Crispin that he goes that he go in character onto the show. He was going on the talk show circuit to promote the movie. Crispin Glover was, and his character Ruben wears these giant platform heels and bell bottoms, <laughs> and. Um, very strange, and at some point he accidentally kicks in this in this in this uh, appearance on David Letterman's show. Accidentally kicks David Letterman in the head. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, definitely Google that. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, available. So. Letterman ends the segment. He he says, "I'm going to go check on the top ten list." He leaves leaves Crispin Glover on stage. It's it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, check it out, uh, Crispin Glover on Letterman. <laughs> Uh, before yeah. we go to a break, uh, Jeremy Pugh, I, uh, I neglected uh, part of the Desert Alphabet. Uh, one of the most interesting things, I, I learned this uh, from you, um, that, uh, that, you know, Desert Alphabet is an interesting bit of history, but you can also find it on uh, many computer systems, operating systems. Yeah, well, there was when they were building computers back in the early days, um, they established, they needed to establish like a common language. That, so computers could talk to each other. It's called Unicode, and um, <laughs> there were there were some people, uh, LDS uh, church members, who were worked on that project. Um, and so 
one of the Unicode languages that's embedded in it's in my computer in my Macintosh is uh, is the Deseret Alphabet. It's a glyph that you can load into your uh, your font file, basically. And uh, I I sent you the notes on how to do that, but it's in there. <laughs> you know, it's kind of an interesting. Because it's it's pretty much universal. This Unicode, it's part of the basic computer structure that we, you know, have built built on. But it's sort of in the foundations of your computer, if you will. And if people are interested, uh, get the book "Secret Salt Lake City." It's on page sixty uh, with with this. Uh, and uh, Jeremy Pugh has there's a paragraph on how to pull up uh, Desert Alphabet <laughs> from your computer. Amazing. Yeah, got a yeah. little. Yeah, a little tech support there in there for right. you. So if you want to try it out yourself, um, right. and you know you're happy to reach out to me, and I can show you how to do it. <laughs> All right, very so. good. Oh, let's so we're overdue for a break. Let's take a break. We'll have much more. Secret Salt Lake City is the uh, is the book. We're talking to uh, the co-author Jeremy Pugh. Uh, more following this. The Utah Women in Leadership Project and the Governor's Office of Economic Opportunity have created an initiative to identify 100 Utah companies that champion women. These companies have created an environment where women can thrive. I'm Dr. Susan Madsen, founding director of the Utah Women in Leadership Project. In our next podcast episode, we highlight one of those companies, Digital Responsibility. Listen now at upr.org. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering music, dining, nightlife, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Jeremy Pugh. He is one of the authors of Secret Salt Lake City. The subtitle is Guide, A Guide to the Weird, Wonderful, and Obscure. We're talking about some of these places and uh, historical facts uh, from the book on the program today. Uh, Jeremy Pugh, you write in the... uh, publicity materials for the book. I'll just quote you. This book isn't about secrets per se. We tried to capture those stories about Salt Lake City that are typically passed around through word of mouth. So is is that mostly how you came across these places? I guess you would have known some of these. I imagine you wouldn't have known others. Yeah. I mean, there was kind of a long discovery process. I mean, having through my work at Salt Lake Magazine primarily I mean, you come across these things, you know, and so I had kind of a, a file, if you will, of of things. But then, you know, I kind of crowdsourced it a little bit, you know, sat down with Ken Sanders at his bookstore, sat down with Will Bagley. And, and they had, there was, I mean, I, there were many more that could have made it in, basically, you know, uh, just strange stories, you know, and some of them are just that stories, urban myths, legends, but it's the kind of thing that... That every a lot of people know, they just don't know. <laughs> you know, they're they're kind of just in the background here. That's why I kind of call them secrets hiding in plain sight. You know, there there's there's always more to the story uh, than, and that was what we were able to kind of uncover and 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 spell out a little more. So, yeah, it was it was a, it was a fun process of, you know, a 
being able to to learn more about all these things that I'd kind of grown up with and written about in in a fashion and and really like pull it all together in one place into a guidebook that you know it's location based you can go to these places and see these things so let's jump into um uh you know a, a few more of these places um, starting with some some things we've uh, we've kind of teased, so we want to make sure we get this in the hour. So, um, how did Sherlock Holmes solve a fictional mystery in London that originated in Utah? Yeah, that was one of the that was a Mary suggestion because she's a she was a big fan of uh, Conan Doyle's books. Um, so there is a in in the study a study in Scarlet, which is the first Sherlock Holmes uh, novella. It's short, they're they're pretty short books actually. Um, she, the, the, the murder or the, the origin of the crime that happens in London that Sherlock Holmes gets involved in the case happens in, um, Utah. <laughs> there was a group of people, a group of, uh, um, oh, I guess you'd kind of call them enforcers <laughs> called the Danites, um, here and, and they were kind of, <sighs> kept the order, I guess, if you will, here in early Utah. And they happened to um, kill a German immigrant. And uh, this uh, this man goes, anyway, it, you have to read it, but he goes, you know, he goes, there, there's, there's a revenge motive that happens because he goes, you know, this, the, the, the father of this people that were killed goes and hunts these men down in, in England. Uh, and then Sherlock Holmes gets involved in the case, basically, and and connects it to Utah. He doesn't actually come to Utah in the in the fictional novel, but uh, he does connect it to Utah. And, and at that time in England, <clears throat> the, as I said before, the, the there were a lot of missionary efforts on behalf of the early church, and they were active in England. And so there was also a little bit of Mormon hysteria in England. Uh, there's a lot of books from that period, you know, kind of fear-mongering books. Uh, and so it's kind of part of the culture of the time when Con- in England when Conan O'Doyle, Conan Doyle, Conan Doyle, uh, A. Conan Doyle was writing his, his first Sherlock Holmes novel. So, yeah, that's fascinating. So, fascinating, yeah. Um, so why is a chunk of the Matterhorn enshrined at uh, the Utah Ski Resort? Yeah, this was a story that came to me from Connie Marshall, who was the longtime sort of marketing uh, PR person for Alta, which is next door to um, Snowbird Resort. Um, so on the tram deck, which is the kind of main area at Snowbird there, there's just this rock, <laughs> a chunk of rock. And, you know, it's, again, one of those things you just kind of walk by and not look at. But there's a plaque on it. So Snowbird was founded there or conceived in the early late sixties and opened actually in 1971. And its founder was a guy named Dick Bass. He was an, uh, an adventurer and an oil man and um, had climbed all the seven summits and all this sort of stuff. And he and his partner, Ted Johnson went around to other, you know, they were building a resort from basically scratch um, and they went around to other resorts, and one of those was Zermatt in in Switzerland, which is in the Alps. And uh, and they 
actually <laughs> made a deal with the mayor of Zermatt, become kind of sister cities. I mean, Snowbird's technically a city. I mean, it's more just a resort, right? But um, And they, uh, when they opened the resort, they had a big Swiss-themed ceremony. The mayor from Zermatt came and presented uh, Dick Bass and, and, and the owners of Snowbird uh, with a, a piece of the Matterhorn <laughs> to commemorate the moment, basically. So, hmm. uh, it was, you know, and, it, and it, that, that's just sitting there. And like I said, it's the kind of thing you just walk by and not even notice when you're up at Oktoberfest or skiing or whatever. Hmm. Yeah, so, I had, had no idea. Um, so one of your chapters talks about Yosepa. Uh, some people may not be aware that there's a, as you call it, a Hawaiian ghost town in, in, in the West Desert uh, in Utah. What uh, Tell us a little bit about Yosepa. Yeah, it's one of my favorite stories. Um, it So, again, these missionary efforts, they also were very active in the, in the Pacific Islands. Tonga, Samoa, Hawaii, um, which was then the Sandwich Islands. Um, and a lot of these converts came to Utah. There's still a very large Polynesian population here, uh, Pacific Islanders, people from Tonga, Samoa, Hawaii, uh, that came here to be, you know, where the, the church was. Um, and they, <laughs> there was a probably, a, I mean, I guess you could probably say there was a little race, racist pushback you know, um, at these people. And so they decided to settle them in a place called Skull Valley, which is west of Salt Lake, uh, behind the Ochre Mountains. Um, if you were heading out to Tooele, you'd be in the vicinity, basically. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I always think, gosh, these people come from this verdant, lush places in the world, the, the Pacific Islands, Hawaii. Um, and, uh, they get stuck out in Skull Valley, you know, which is a very arid, dry place. But um, and these are predominantly Hawaiians, and there was also kind of a rational fear of leprosy. Uh, Hawaii also was known for you know they had a lot of leper colonies out there, um, and so they, which there were no cases really, <laughs> as at least in my research, so there was very few. It wasn't. It was like I said, an irrational fear. So this group of Hawaiians, predominantly, was settled in Skull Valley. They lived out there. They made a go of it for quite some time, uh, and it was with a lot of support from the church. Um, you know, farming, some ranching, but again, you get a very dry, arid place to live. Uh, and eventually, the town. You know, what what really kind of put the town in decline. And it was called the Osepa after. Joseph Smith, not not Joseph Smith, the founder of the church, one of his descendants, uh, who was the president of the church at the time, and, and had done a lot of missionary work in Hawaii. Um, and it, what really kind of was the end of it was that they they the the church built a temple in Hawaii, and so many of these people went back to Hawaii to go work on the temple. So it just kind of faded out, but. There's markers on the highway out there that have a King Kamehameha, uh, you know, uh, that, that say Yosepa, and there's a little graveyard, and kind of the, you can see the remnants of the town. And it's kind of a fun field trip. Well, a little grim, but it's, you know, it's definitely one of those interesting things that, you know, again, it's a head scratcher. Well, what are Hawaiians, Utah, you know, 
that kind of thing. So, uh, one more of the, the ones we've teased. Make sure we get those in uh, before we go to break, and then when we come back, I'll just alert you to you know maybe uh, pick out a couple, two or three of most interesting things in the book stand out to you. But um, why is Utah called the Beehive State? Well, it, it, uh, the the early Mormons they were very industrious people, and and you know one of the mottos you know of the church was industry and cooperation. It was a you know they they had to work very closely together and and support each other, and so it sort of became a metaphor for the way bees, uh, you know, work hard and produce you know you know, protect their queen and all that sort of stuff. And, and so, uh, and it was, a, it was an early emblem, uh, a beehive that you see all over Utah. There's one up on the Capitol steps here in Salt Lake city. And, and it's on, in fact, Brigham Young's home was the, the beehive house. Um, so it, it was, uh, it was just something that, and, and it, and it's actually, you know, I think people really kind of, love it a little bit you know because it's uh bees are cool <laughs> you know and bees you know we we like bees and and uh so you can see it all over the state and it was just really like a metaphor for industry and actually the shape of the beehive is an old kind of hive that's not used anymore called a skep like beekeepers don't use that technique but it was a it was kind of an early english honeybee uh beekeeping technique but it's that kind of signature beehive that you would like the beehive hairdo and all that sort of thing. So, so in fact, they, they just uh, are going to vote on a new flag, and the beehive is is still a part of our state symbol and our state flag. Yeah, very appropriate. Uh, yeah, now that you mention it, uh, I guess beehives nowadays uh, they're basically boxes, right? If you, right. If you go right. Out, go yeah. There's, well, there's, there's some of better ways to do that. Right. But, right. Yeah. <laughs> but that that's the old that's the old, and it's it's kind of what everybody thinks in their head when they think beehive. You yeah. know. That shaped thing. Well, in a and a box on a flag that doesn't ring, you know, doesn't have yeah. some cachet. Yeah, right. Uh, well, let's take another break. Um, we're talking about the book "Secret Salt Lake City: A Guide to the Weird, Wonderful, and Obscure," and uh, the authors are Jeremy Pugh and Mary Brown Maloof. We're talking with Jeremy Pugh, and we'll have more following this break. Utah Public Radio is broadcasting in Spanish on a new channel. You can hear a variety of music and talk programs in Spanish from Radio Bilingue on UPR. You can hear it 24 hours a day at upr.org. Just click on Listen Live and then press the UPR 3 button. Utah Public Radio está transmitiendo en español en un nuevo canal. Puede escuchar una variedad de programas musicales y de charlas en español de Radio Bilingue en UPR. Puede escucharlo las 24 horas del día en upr.org. Simplemente haga clic en Escuchar en Vivo y luego presione el botón UPR 3. When we talk about military veterans, it's often in the context of the struggles they face. It's almost taken as a given that those who return for combat are going to be afflicted with post-traumatic stress. But here are some other things that are also true. Veterans have higher rates of employment, income, entrepreneurship, and reported satisfaction with work and family life because, yes, post-traumatic stress is real, but so is post-traumatic growth. That's Undisciplined, Thursday morning at 10.30. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're learning about Secret Salt Lake City. That's the title of a book. 
the subtitle is A Guide to the Weird, Wonderful, and Obscure. The authors are Jeremy Pugh and Mary Brown Maloof. We're talking with Jeremy Pugh, who's editor of Salt Lake Magazine, uh, on the program today. Uh, Jeremy Pugh, um, I'll have you pick out uh, a couple, two or three uh, uh, things from the book, interesting facts. Uh, but before we get there, um, I'll, I'll hog the... I'll hog the choosing for another couple of things. Um, <laughs> well, that's helpful. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, my wife and I went down and saw this, the Gilgal uh, Sculpture Garden, oh, a couple of years ago. Uh, I'd heard about it for a long time, and finally we decided, well, we're going to go and, and uh, see this. It was, it, was, it was fascinating. Tell us about the, the Gilgal Sculpture Garden. I, I honestly, I think if there was one kind of poster child of of this book, you know, like the the thing that it's this it's this uh, sculpture garden in kind of the central Salt Lake. It's very near Charlie Square. It's actually near the magazine's offices. Um, and what it was was there was a, 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 a this guy Thomas Batter. Hold on, let me get his name right here. Uh, Thomas Battersby Child. Uh, he was a Mormon bishop, a local businessman. He was also a stonemason. And so, you know, he was just sort of a, a guy living in Salt Lake and the, you know, um, and he, but his hobby was, was sculpture, sculpting. Um, and so he built all of these sculptures in his backyard, you know, he'd get done with work and go tinker in the backyard. And it's a really great example of outsider art because he was not a trained artist or any, you know, he wasn't. This is more of his hobby and his, his love, and a, and a lot of the sculptures incorporate uh, Mormon and biblical imagery, uh, and it's a really and and it was it was going to be torn down, and there was a group of preservationists who fought to save it, and now it's a public county park uh, just right in the city, so you can go visit it. And you know, when we were kids, it was kind of one of those things you'd hear about. Oh, there's this weird, freaky garden. And you'd have to kind of sneak in <laughs> to it, but now there's a, you know, there's a you can just go on in there, and and probably the most prominent, there's all, all the sculptures are very interesting. Um, there's like scriptural passages carved in stones and um, strange heads and shapes and grasshoppers, and uh, is the, but the prominent one is there's a, a sphinx, like an Egyptian sphinx with the face of Joseph Smith. Uh, on it, and it, you know, it's probably the, one of the largest, you know, it's the one that everybody recognizes, um, and, and it's even on the cover of my book, because it is, it's, again, that emblematic secret, you know, it's the kind of thing you just walk by, if you didn't know to go into this little park, you wouldn't, you'd just miss it, so, and I always, when people come to visit, I'm like, go check out Gilgal Garden, you know, <laughs> just, just, you know. So. Yeah, it is fascinating. Uh, let's say I'll choose one more and then have you choose a couple. Um, the Exile of Jean-Baptiste. This is a fascinating story, and it, it involves Fremont Island in uh, Great Salt Lake, right? Yeah, um, this was one actually in my early days of the magazine. Uh, one of our writers, a freelancer, uh, wrote out this story, so I, 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 you know, I discovered it then. Um, but... There was a, in the late 1850s. There was a, a kind of a guy named John Baptiste. He was a French immigrant. He drifted into Salt Lake City. Um, he, uh, he found a job as the city's grave digger in 1852, and there was a kind of a flap over a, a body <laughs> that happened, and they, this led investigators to uh, John Baptiste, 
and they discovered he'd been stealing clothes and jewelry from the bodies he was charged with burying and all. He's thought to have desecrated like 300 graves. Uh, and it was that was especially sensitive to um, uh, LBS practitioners because they believe that you're resurrected, and so the, the clothes and things you're buried in eventually will be resurrected. Are <laughs> They're special. And so it was especially abhorrent, uh, and it was covered widely in the newspapers. And... <sighs> They didn't know exactly how to punish this guy <laughs> because it was it was a especially vile thing, um, but it didn't you know it wasn't a death penalty or you know kind of thing. So they decided to exile him to Fremont Island, which is one of the islands out in the Great Salt Lake. Um, and so they rode him out there on a boat, and there was some shelter out there, <laughs> and he was shackled and left out there. So. And and there's been people have claimed to have found his remains, or but he just sort of disappeared, and so no one really knows if he got off the island, or um, and he, they certainly haven't found any remains out there. But just one of those strange mysteries. And this one, I think, you, is a great opportunity to go out to Antelope Island, which is the easily accessible island, and I think it's it's a neat place, and you can especially on the western shore, uh, you know, kind of gaze out into this lunar landscape of the of the lake and kind of think about poor old John Baptiste stuck out there. <laughs> so, Yeah, amazing. Uh, we just have about, oh, four or five minutes left in the program. I'd love to, love to hear uh, you choose a, cu- a couple of, of places uh, or historical facts from the book. Yeah, um, one of my other favorites is the State Street River. Uh, in 1983, uh, there was a big flood. They had two really snowy seasons. Um, and in April of that year, it became pretty clear that the, the city was going to flood. Um, and, and so they just, they, they had to do something. And it's really one of my favorite stories of cooperation between, of a whole community. And I was a young boy in 1983 and lived here. And the mayor of Salt Lake City, Ted Wilson, asked the church if they could get help sand building, basically making a, a sandbagging State Street and 1300 South to divert the water that was going to eventually come down. Um, and so, what was the famous quote? He said, "You know that Mormons famously don't work on Sundays, but this was a special emergency, and everybody came together." And they diverted the water uh, down, so there was a river running down State Street, uh, and on 1300 South, it went by Dirks Field then, which is now the, the Bees Ball Park, uh, in both directions. And it became kind of this, like, festive event. I remember going down, because there was just this huge walls of sandbags, and you could walk along State Street, and there was bridges across the river, and people were kayaking and <laughs> floating in it and things like that. And it was just this kind of really singular moment of like civic cooperation uh, that saved, it ultimately saved the city from a, from what would have been a disastrous flood. And there is a marker at about 13th South State Street uh, that that you know it says it's a it's a State Street River Rock. <laughs> it's got some carvings in it to to mark that occasion. 
So yeah, I, I well remember that. Uh, you know, I wasn't there, but uh, I was out in Vernal at the time. But uh, yeah, that's that's amazing that those floods uh, that year. And yeah, that's that's a that is a great example of cooperation. Yeah, wonderful. What yeah. Uh, what else would you choose? Well, um, let's see. I was thinking. Uh, well, the Sun Sunnum Pyramid. We've talked a lot about all the LDF stuff because it, it is part of the fabric of our of our history here. But um, it, there's a pyramid on the west side of Salt Lake City, about seventh west. Um, and it's the, the church of a of a of a, a religion called some some I always say it wrong some um some um religion, uh, and it was founded by a guy named Amon Ra. Uh, with it has a lot of Egyptian kind of mysticism to it, although Amon Ra also goes by the name Corky, um, and it's uh, the, their kind of worship space is this pyramid that you can go visit on the on the west side of so you could drive by it and and part of the rituals of this kind of modern church founded in like 1975 uh is uh that that the goal of is spiritual psychokinesis the ability to move objects using your brain like spoon bending if you will um as they also believe in mummification so uh, when when practitioners die, they're mummified uh, in the Egyptian uh, Egyptian, and actually the church will mummify you if you wish for a fee. <laughs> if that's how you want, uh, or, and they will also do pets. I think they kind of use it as a little bit of a fundraiser, to be honest. So, but that's something that's again one of those things you you might be driving around over in this part of town, and there's a pyramid, an Egyptian pyramid, uh, just sitting out there in plain sight. So, <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, very interesting. Well, there's much, much else in the book. You'll, you'll have to pick it up for yourself. Secret Salt Lake City is the title of the book, the subtitle, A Guide to the Weird, Wonderful, and Obscure. Uh, Jeremy Pugh is co-author of the book. Uh, he is editor of uh, Salt Lake Magazine, and you can find him on Twitter and Instagram, at Very Dynamite. His website is at verydynamite.com. Uh, Jeremy Pugh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was really great talking to you, and I hope I hope everybody enjoyed it. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And uh, pick up the book. Uh, and uh, thanks, everyone, for listening today. We'll go out as we do on Thursdays with uh, Leo T. and Skywatcher. It's many cultures, one sky. Skywatcher Leo T here, looking up in the sky tonight by 7 or so, looking to the east above the Moab Rim or the Wasatch Front covered with snow. You'll find a planet called Mars looking like a deep orange ball, and it's relatively close right now. Near this and to the left is larger Capella. To the right, find another orange orb, which is Aldebaran, the eye of twinkling Tars the Bull with its mysterious double stars and trails, and a bit above and to the right is Trembling Jewel of Pleiades. Speaking of Mars, just as NASA's Mars rovers rely on robust wheels to roam the red planet and conduct science, some orbiters rely on wheels too. 
in this case reaction wheels. To stay pointed in the right direction, engineers and technicians at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory recently installed four reaction wheels on the Europa Clipper, a large space probe which is set to launch soon. Europa will rely on the same type of wheels during its journey to Jupiter's icy moon Europa for lots of science. Stay tuned! And taking the little Skywatcher spaceship further out in space, traveling way out to the Orion Nebula. Newly minted images from NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope shows images captured in infrared light that reveal otherwise unseen details as an intriguing image from NASA, we've got it on the Skywatcher site, of star-forming regions in the Orion Nebula. A recent study that relied on the infrared data tracked frequent outbursts from the baby stars as they gathered mass from surrounding disks of gas and dust. University of Toledo astronomer Tom McGeeth explains, you're watching star formation, clouds of gas collapse to form a star. It's literally the process of star creation in real time. And in closer exploration, the Artemis 1 moon launch, as you probably know, finally launched, taking three days longer than the Apollo ships to get to the moon. And once in the vicinity, the command module fired its thrusters and out to a far orbit, about 248,000 miles from Earth, just a bit further than Apollo 13 had previously gone, set the record in April of 1970 of being the farthest human-inhabited spaceship from Earth. But they had astronauts on board. The Artemis does not at this point. As the Orion capsule from Artemis orbits and tests systems and deploys satellites and fires back to Earth, it's many cultures, one sky. Sky is something we all have in common. It's all of our heritage. Northern Utah poet Margaret Pettis. This one is, sure um, has not been seen yet. It's no. new. Bison. A poem stepped through the pines, tapers lit by lightning, not a lord. His great mane and broad wet back, his pointed horns and small dark eyes, draped with a cape of hailstones, a mantle unmelted, unmoving. I caught his eye from my distant crossing on the trail his kin had cut through the brush, stirring dust into mud, clinging to fetlocks and swinging black beards. His jaws ground cud he'd carried from the meadow. Not turning his head, he stood in the woods, night bedded down, pelted with stones of ice and needles, red and dry hangers-on, knocked loose from the high prickly canopy, whiskering his snowy robe. His eye held mine, white ice on black lashes, a beast too big to be real. And in the sky tonight, the bison or buffalo from the Lakota is the constellation Tiamni emerging out of the earth. And the hoop of stars near Mars in our eastern view tonight, composing of Orion with blue rigel and orange Betelgeuse forming the ribs. And the three belt stars are the backbone, the bright star Sirius, the tail, and Pleiades, its head. So keep the imagination running away with you and look up, look around, and get a little bit lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T on UPR with translator stations statewide and beaming live at upr.org.
My name is Jamie Butler and I've spent half of my 46 years studying the science and the people and the ecology of Great Salt Lake. I didn't know that I wanted to work at Great Salt Lake and I actually accidentally started working there right out of college and I never stopped. I've been a biologist for the brine shrimp industry, I've worked in academia, and I've also worked with government agencies helping to manage the resources of the lake. I've been fortunate as a woman in a very predominantly man's world, you know, brine shrimp industry and even the state, like I've been really, really lucky to be encouraged along the way to do the work that I wanted to do and not every person has that. I devoted a lot of my time to telling people about the lake and helping people understand why we shouldn't let it disappear, why we shouldn't just dry it up. And so I hope that the work that I've done has helped to shape perceptions about Great Salt Lake. And I think it has. I think that so many of us have been working for Great Salt Lake for so long that people are starting to understand that we really need to have Great Salt Lake. If we don't, we have environmental and cultural and economic catastrophe. And I am not going to shut up until people understand that. This is Lake Effect from the Great Salt Lake Collaborative. Stay salty, Utah. Hello, I'm Corva Coleman. Every December, the Glee Clubs of Morehouse and Spelman Colleges get together to celebrate the season in concert. It's one of the hottest tickets in town, but this year we've saved a place for you right here on the radio. Join us for Christmas with the Morehouse and Spelman Glee Clubs, a great tradition with new additions from NPR. Tune in Monday night at 9 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio. You are listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.